0: Welcome to Immigration Nerds. This podcast is for everyone seeking the details, context, and facts behind the banner headlines on immigration. It's the podcast that gives you the latest on immigration policy and politics and the real-world impacts on the people and businesses that make our world turn. If you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by the nerds at Erickson Immigration Group guiding clients and their employees through the complex immigration system for over 20 years.
1: Hello immigration nerds. I'm Lauren Clark, senior attorney at Ericsson Immigration Group. I am a fellow nerd, an immigrant and host of this amazing podcast. On every episode, we're joined by the smartest nerds in the know as we cover trends in business, culture, technology and politics at the intersection of global immigration. Today, we nerd out on the immigration policies of our neighbours to the north, Canada, a nation whose population grew by over 1 million people for the first time ever last year, and which expects to welcome another 1.5 million new permanent residents by the end of 2025. But first, we start with a roundup of the recent immigration news that we should all be aware of. And as always, we've got just the right nerd for that. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Rob. That's Rob Taylor, partner at Ericsson Immigration Group and our News Nerd-in-Chief. What's in the immigration news feed today?
2: Yeah, so I wanted to cover a few updates today, uh, mostly pertaining to business immigration. So the first is the USCIS fee increase. So we previously talked about this and the fact that it would probably be going into effect Q4 of this year, maybe Q1 of 2024. Uh, Recently, USCIS had closed the comment period in mid-March. And they just let us know that actually all of the comments were not properly posted. So they're working on getting those comments posted, and then they'll kind of take the next steps in the rulemaking process. We still expect those fees to go into effect probably in Q4 of this year. And that's really significant because the increases are a lot. And so we're going to continue to monitor this, continue to keep folks up to date on it because companies and and clients really do need to prepare for these fee increases. They they will have a substantial impact on their budgets. Uh, Additionally, Just recently, the May Visa Bulletin was released. So again, as a reminder, the Bulletin is released on a monthly basis, and it helps identify when folks can be eligible to get their green cards. So they break it down by family as well as employment. And in this most recent Bulletin, the EB2 and the EB3 categories for worldwide retrogress. So that means that the dates that were set in the previous bulletin actually moved backwards. And that that happens from time to time. And it is important to track and monitor because unless a person's priority date is current on the visa bulletin, they can't receive their green card. So with regards to the retrogression, it's important for folks to keep in mind that if they were in an EB2 category and their date moved backwards, but it still might be current in an EB3 category, they might be eligible to interfile and uh, downgrade their basis for qualifying for the green card. So they should certainly talk to an attorney about that. As far as the EB2 and EB3 categories for China and India, they remain the same. So no advances, no retrogression. We'll just have to wait till next month to see if there's any changes for those folks. And then lastly, the Department of Labor has released a new ETA-9089 form. That form was first published by the Department of Labor in 2005, and it's specific to the green card process as it relates to PERM. So anytime an employer wants to sponsor someone for a green card, they have to go through certain steps where they test the labor market. And then once that process is completed, they submit this form ETA-9089, and then the Department of Labor will determine if there's any qualified U.S. workers for that role since 2005 there have not been any new forms uh, and so we've essentially been dealing with the same form for almost 20 years now uh, but as of May 16th a new form will take effect uh, that form is currently available online through the office of foreign labor certification and uh, so folks should go and check out the new form there are some changes to it uh, nothing major but but some changes that need to be accounted for uh, I think we're the where the real changes are actually with regards to some technical improvements. So the form can now actually integrate some information that's available through the Department of Labor uh, flag system. And additionally, there are answers that will actually auto-populate on the form depending upon how you answer previous questions. And so it's really important that you understand the logic of the form and how certain answers will actually dictate how certain answers will actually auto-populate later on down the form. Uh, so those, those are the major things. Um, you know, this this perm one in particular is very significant just because the form has been static for so long, and uh, and they've given us a relatively short period of time to prepare for the change. Uh, but as always, we are expecting um, you know further guidance on on how the form should be completed, and we expect that we'll uh, we'll get more information as things move forward.
1: That was NewsNode Rob Taylor. Thank you, Rob. Now for a conversation about the promise and problems surrounding Canadian immigration. Between 2023 and 2025, Canada will welcome nearly 1.5 million new permanent residents, the majority through economic pathways that reward international work experience, education attainment and proficiency in at least one official language. But some, like our guests today, are concerned that Canada's push to solve labour shortages actually be revealing an underlying hr crisis rory spillane grew up in ireland moved to vancouver in 2008 and started an online community for newcomers to canada in 2011 who better to discuss canadian immigration with than a canadian immigrant rory thank you for joining us on the immigration nerds podcast thanks lord so let's nerd out on canadian immigration rory you're a canadian immigrant and not in the legal profession You're also an entrepreneur who is focused on helping people from around the globe make their own move to Canada. From your perspective, when it comes to immigration and employment in Canada, top line, what's working and what's not?
0: Both countries are very different drivers for immigration. Um, Primary focus in the U.S. tends to be family reunification and temporary employment visas. But Canada, by contrast, John, the majority of newcomers are um, admitted on the basis of economic need. So in Canada, we give preference to younger candidates with job offers, higher levels of education experience and language proficiency. So what's referred to as a ruthlessly smart immigration system is actually heavily biased towards education and age on the basis that these candidates are most likely to succeed economically. Um, that's probably the, the the biggest distinction, right? Um, while Canada's immigration is relatively functional, um, admitting candidates purely based on economic need uh, does so have some shortfalls, right? Um, where we see the economy is struggling in terms of uh, trades, um, more manual labor or lower skilled. Even though I hate that term, what's happening right now is they're very focused on economic need, and then we're basically taking the cream from the top, and then there's other parts of the economy that are struggling as a result. Um, while I'd refer to the system as relatively functional, and um, there has been a lot of delays uh, which were rectified um, because of the pandemic, and right now um, IRCC workers in Canada are on strike. but. What I would say is what's working is we're bringing in highly skilled workers. There are cracks to showing um, between, um, I guess, what the immigration system is providing and what the labor market is, um, is consuming. But when we look across a lot of sectors, uh, they believe it's going to help the economy long term.
1: So you are hinting here at a key distinction or key difference between Canadian immigration and the U.S. immigration system. And one of, I guess, the biggest differences that we can identify with the non-immigrant work visa program is an actual offer of employment. So our understanding is that in Canada, immigrants for work visas don't necessarily need a job to come. However, in the U.S., they cannot come without one. You recently wrote in an op-ed for the Toronto Star newspaper that described survival jobs as being infamous among newcomers. What do you mean by survival jobs? And why are we seeing Canadian employers be so hesitant to hire these newcomers for the specialty occupations?
0: Sure. When When we describe a survival job, we talk about a job that pays the bills, but it doesn't relate to the career trajectory of that individual, right? Um, obviously a survival job to, uh, to me, uh, could be, uh, it could be a career job to somebody else, right? So it's really, uh, referring to the skills of the, um, the actual individual. So these survival jobs, they meet basic requirements, but they're not actually allowing that newcomer to take their career tra- uh, trajectory. In Canada, we talk. You know, uh, we see a lot of highly skilled immigrants. They're delivering food or driving an Uber, and that's an example of, um, you know, an immigrant performing a survival job. So, they've um, studied. They've studied a four or five year degree. They've um, honed in their English or French capability. They've jumped through all the hoops of the Canadian immigration system. Um, but their long-term role was not in this particular role. So that's what we refer to as a survival job. Um, the challenge in Canada is we're seeing all too many immigrants, um, they're coming into Canada, they're prepared to drop a few levels to get started on the thing, but we're finding that they are getting stuck in survival jobs long-term and only unable to move up to their, um, to their proper level.
1: It's interesting to understand that this is the outcome that many immigrants are finding in Canada. On our last episode of this podcast, we asked the question, is the difficulty in navigating the US legal immigration system so tough that it's driving top talent to other countries around the globe? What is your feeling on that? And how many folks are you working with who are coming to Canada from the United States potentially as part of a spring migration of individuals who weren't selected in the H-1B cap lottery and are looking to Canada as opposed to the U.S., but ultimately finding that the Canadian system is resulting in employment in these survival jobs.
0: I suppose the two aspects to that question is, first, is the U.S. missing out on highly skilled immigrants? Absolutely. One very interesting observation during the Trump era was we witnessed record traffic from the U.S., but... When we zoned into that traffic, we noticed that uh, the majority of the users in the US were in fact immigrants. So they had chased the US dream and then they had decided, or then many of them decided to explore pursuit of the Canadian dream, right? Um, to give you a case in point, one of my employees currently had moving to Canada, he's a highly skilled marketing profession. He studied an MBA at Pepperdine in California and then changed course to Canada. Uh, once uh, the U.S. tightened up student immigration rules in the the wake of COVID. So that's a kind of practical example, but I believe what's happening now is people realize that a a merit-based system is very fair, and I think that's what uh, what people are realizing is that um, it's also an option to move to Canada if they can't lock in an employer to support their move in the U.S.,
1: what is it that you've identified is a required support either known or unknown for these immigrants something that you and your colleagues at movingtocanada.com are actively working to help implement into the migration to canada
0: newcomers have lots of different barriers to overcome so lots of them are known Um, many of them are unknown right Um, so the moving country is a very transformational act we refer to it as a roller coaster of emotions. Some of the some of the dips you're expecting, and some of the the highs uh, you don't know about. So, our goal really is to kind of break down those barriers. So, immigration is just one of those hurdles. It's a very transactional act. But what we do at Moving to Canada is we use technology. Uh, we create personalized checklists for each uh, of our users to help them navigate the immigration, settlement, and employment challenges so that they can build their dream life in Canada. So we're quite holistic. Uh, immigration is just one aspect of their success in a new country. All newcomers are accountable for their own immigration. So we talk about, there's lots of support um, organizations, um, or there's settlement agencies offered by the Canadian immigration system, but take up on these services is not great. Um, one observation we notice is that the ruthlessly smart people that Canada is trying to attract right now are wholly unequipped for a job hunt in a new country because nobody teaches them how to deal with rejection. Nobody teaches them about the psychology of a job hunt. Um, unfortunately, emotional intelligence, we're trying to teach that in universities, but it's the the peaks and troughs of your first two or three months in Canada is something that we try to prepare people for us. and the hidden factors, Um, The loneliness, um, the roller coaster of emotions that you'll inevitably go through uh, without having your friends and family to support you. So um, what we do on on the newcomer side is we work hard to help newcomers adapt successfully to the labor market through advice on resume, networking, interview skills. We talked about the psychology of the job hunt, the highs and lows. And what's happening is too often they come uh, ill-equipped for the, the jobs market in Canada and we're really focused on helping them learn and assimilate to that jobs market.
1: Looking at the Canadian immigration system for work, the visa programs and the disconnect that you've previously described between immigrants coming in, having these particular education and qualifications, ultimately ending up in survival jobs, but also, having a labour market within Canada that's in desperate need of individuals to fill positions that aren't necessarily targeted by having a certain level of education or qualification. Do you believe Canadian officials recognise the disconnect you're describing? And is there moves that they could take to uncap the potential of new arrivals?
0: I think it's becoming apparent. Um, what we're seeing is an unpre- unprecedented rise in economic class immigrants. So this, uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, highly educated people come into the market. And what's happening is you know, we're seeing a gap between um, the labor market not consuming the product of the immigration system, right? The engineer with a PhD driving a taxi has always been the cliche in Canada, um, but it feels like it's getting all too prevalent now. What's required, I guess, is there's a realization, you know, from our labor market that they need to do a better job in absorbing the available labor in the country right here, right now. Um, both employers and newcomers can make adjustments to their behavior before this becomes a, a bigger problem. Um, the last thing we want is, um, as a country is Canada realizing that the, um, the land of milk and honey is the land of frustration, right? And, uh, and underemployment. So the labour market needs to speak up if they don't believe the output of the immigration system is suitable for purpose. And But my hunch is that employers will continue to cherry pick talent despite the labour shortage in the country and that can create larger problems down the line.
1: Rory, this leads to a great follow-up to the question you posed in your op-ed last month. Does Canada have a labour shortage and an HR crisis at the same time?
0: There's lots of factors going on here. I still hear a lot of Canadian employers say, if only we had the people, we could continue to grow. So my argument is those highly skilled workers are here right now, but they're simply not being integrated into the employment market. Um, there are some factors like foreign credentials recognition and Canada's flawed obsession with local work experience. But another side is I, I feel there's a reluctance to give an opportunity to highly skilled immigrants that are coming from developing countries, right? Because we, we perceive things such as immigration risk and cultural risk, but what's happening right now is we're not accepting that we have to absorb these people. It's a, it's a labor shortage and we can't cherry pick the talent continually in a labor shortage. And we have to realize that our immigration system is delivering a product. And those people are here right now, and we need to give them the skills and help them gain that local experience that is valued in this continent.
1: Does that create a greater demand or a greater market for support services? Or does it require a greater regulatory response from the Canadian government? Or is it a little of both?
0: It's a little bit of both. I think there needs to be, um, a rude awakening that saying, Hey, the, the people are here, why are, why are we not absorbing these people and why, um, this flawed obsession with local experience is something I, I, I see a lot, you know, we're waiting, we're in a labor shortage and we're waiting for the nines and tens instead of realizing that the seven and eights out of 10 will gain local experience and adapt to Canada because they have the core skills that we set out in our immigration system for success. On the newcomer side, we'll continue to help newcomers assimilate as best we can to meet the needs of um, Canadian employers. But like, not many countries can afford to cherry pick during a labor shortage. But somehow Canada is still managing, and I think that's the that's the bigger problem here.
1: It's interesting, Rory, because we see from the U.S. side a spring migration that happens after the H-1B cap lottery that happens in early March, April where individuals are flocking through to Canada as an alternative option when they're not selected. We haven't seen those numbers decrease and we are likely to see the current trajectory continue as there's a continued demand for individuals coming into Canada. Do you think there will be a recognition that the grass isn't necessarily greener on the other side?
0: My worry right now is if we continue the current trajectory, it could become a problem because um, advocacy is a key part of immigration. Um, If highly skilled immigrants are continuing to land in Canada and reporting back to their home countries or their friends and family and saying, I was sold a dream. I went through an economic class program and I've been unable to find full employment in in the country. That's gonna become a big challenge. So I think it's something that Canada can address very easily, but like all um, big problems, we have to accept there's a problem before we can work in the solution.
1: Thank you so much for your insights, Rory Spillane, founder and CEO at Moving to Canada and Outpost Recruitment. Thank you for joining us on the Immigration Nerds podcast.
0: Thanks, Lauren. it was great to be on the show.
1: And thank you to all you nerds out there listening. You can track everything going on at Ericsson Immigration Group at our website, eiglaw.com. And remember, if you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Subscribe and share and meet us right back here for another new episode of Immigration Nerds Podcast.